on a hill too far away. 15 Protestant truths about the death of God the Son. This is part 7. We have an interview tonight, prayer groups tonight, and you might not believe me, but we're going to go fairly quickly through uh, tonight's study. The long title for this shorter study is Jesus Christ died on the cross to give us confidence that God will freely grant us all things ultimately good and blessed. Jesus died on the cross not just to give us forgiveness but to give us confidence that God will freely grant us all things ultimately good and blessed. One text, Romans 8 31, 32, Paul writes, you pick him up in the middle of an argument that he's been building for the whole 8th chapter, and he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, so the he is God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him, the Son, up for us all, that's on the cross, how will he not also, with him, that is, having given us his Son, graciously give us all things? There are three questions that I want to answer from this text. And what I hope to show is that all three questions find their answer, in fact, can only find their answer, in the cross of Jesus Christ. Here are the three questions that we're going to look at. Question number one. What are the things that would cause people to doubt God's love and grace in their lives? Question number two. How are Christians to find hope and comfort and confidence in the face of doubt and anger and fear? What's the method Paul uses? And third, what is the argument Paul makes in this text that assures us that God will freely grant us all things ultimately good and blessed? Those three questions will form the outline. Let's just pray. If it is true... That through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have assurance, Heavenly Father, that you will give us all things ultimately good and blessed. Then we do not want to miss out on understanding your will and your way. And so I pray that you'll guide us and direct us. Help us to see wonder and glory and beauty and richness of provision all because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Keep us near the cross. In your name I pray, use this text as a means to do it. Amen. Here are the three questions. What are the things that would cause Christians to doubt God's goodness and grace in their lives? This is the easiest of the three questions. It doesn't really require a lot of detailed study because we know what causes us to doubt the love of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God, even if we ascribe to all those things in our creedal belief. No one doubts God's love until they confront unexplainable 
suffering, persecution, difficulty, and loss. As a rule, pleasure doesn't make you doubt God's love. Suffering does. Hurt does. Pain does. Unexplainable doubt does. Financial loss does. Ripe old age doesn't make you question or doubt God's love. The sudden, the premature loss of an infant, a young person, a loved one, and you weren't expecting it to happen, that makes you wonder. Popularity doesn't make you doubt God's love and care. Persecution does. Rejection does. Paul writes to Christians he has never met. They are in Rome. He is in Corinth. It's winter, 55 or 56 AD. He has plans of visiting them in Rome, not to stay with them there for long, but to use Rome as a base, as a, as a base of operations to reach into Spain and other areas where there were people still untouched with the gospel. And so he just writes to these Christians at Rome. There are Christians in Rome, probably, historians say, because of people being reached there who had returned from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and went back to Rome and took the gospel with them. But these Christians in Rome are not having an easy time of it. See, the Roman government didn't didn't achieve world dominance by treating those who didn't worship the emperor with kindness. These people were experiencing really jagged persecution. Not the kind we experience. Somebody at school said something funny about you because they thought you were a Christian or you had a professor at university and he mocked you in front of the class. You know, boo-hoo. That's going to happen. These people were, were losing their children, were losing their homes, were being beheaded. They were losing their possessions. They were facing torture. Now, that's when you can start to doubt the love and care of God. So that first question isn't hard. What are the things that make us doubt God's provision, care, and mercy? And it's, and it's, it's not even the things that we experience that we know we have coming to us. We've all done that. Shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that, and now I'm reaping the results. And you kind of think, well, you know, learn from it. But the unexplainable, why? On to question number two. How are Christians to find hope and confidence in the face of these kinds of fears, these kinds of persecutions, these kinds of losses, these kinds of doubts? And it's, it's an important question to ask for two reasons. First, unless you're just a, a, a very different sort of personality, most of us don't like to live with persecution and loss and fear and doubt. And we don't want those who are close to us to have to live through those things either. They aren't pleasant. 
Second, the question is important because our text shows us an answer. How are Christians to find hope? The, the, the text shows us an answer that isn't found where most people think it's going to be found. Especially in much of the church today. Look carefully at Paul's words there in 31 and 32. We read them at the beginning. What then shall we say to these things? These things that are happening. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, that's encouraging. He who did not spare his own son, and so now Paul's going down the road of atonement. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Now, I'm not looking right now at the specifics of Paul's argument. I'm going to get to that in the third question. What I'm looking at now is Paul's surprising method. Where does he look for an answer to this issue? So it's his method, the method of Paul in dealing with doubts, loss, suffering, persecution, discouragement. What is his approach? Where do you start, Paul? What is the church to look at? Where do we go for answers? And, and, and the reason this is important to notice is, as I said earlier, his method isn't the method used most commonly today, even in the church. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't try and soothe them. Don't worry. God loves you. Just remember that. I heard a guy on TV just picture Jesus. He said this, and people somehow were lapping this up. Picture Jesus coming to you in your trial, in your need, and picture him putting his arms around you and giving you an embrace. I don't know what that's for. Paul doesn't go there. And he doesn't just tell them to try and get away from the hustle and bustle. You've had a busy stretch, a difficult stretch. You just need some calm, some peace. Just get away by yourself. No, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what Paul is, that's not the approach he takes. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them to repeat some specific promise. That might be where some of us would go. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always. The Lord is my shepherd. He, he doesn't even do that. And he doesn't take, you know, the positive confession approach. I was watching a brief slice this afternoon. I, was, I always have my afternoon nap. I got up. I had a bit of a latte. And I'm watching a show called Atmosphere for Miracles. And the speaker was working through the Lord's Prayer. Huge crowd, and he, and, he, and he shouted out the phrase, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes, Is there sickness in heaven? And everybody in the crowd goes, No! Is there poverty in heaven? No! People were lapping this nonsense up. Of course, we'll have resurrected bodies in heaven. We don't 
now. We have bodies now that are appointed once to die. No, Paul doesn't take any of those approaches. And, and the reason Paul doesn't take any of these approaches is this. When you're up against it, I mean really up against it, you know in your heart when you're pretending faith. You can act it out as well as you want. You can say all the right things. You can jump up and down and raise your hands. You can claim promises. You can say the right words. You can, you can try and, and picture Jesus come and give you a hug. You can get away and get off on your own and just say, Serenity now, serenity now. But we all know that when you're really up against the heat and fire of the moment... You can't easily control your inner emotional state and condition. You can't, you can't turn your mind off at will. You can't always silence the voices that clamor in your head. Then what are we going to do? Like, what, what is offered here? And this is where Paul's approach is so important and where it differs from the modern spiritual slash therapeutic approaches to faith. Make sure you don't miss it. Take your finger and put your finger under the words in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My question is, do you see what Paul's doing? The title of this message, a rather long title, Jesus died on the cross... To give us confidence that God will grant us all things ultimately good and blessed. Very good. That is a wonderful confidence to have if you can muster it up. But that's the glory of Paul's approach. Paul doesn't leave us with some locker room pep talk. He doesn't just say, cheer up, try not to worry, God loves you, make a positive confession. No. That's not Paul's approach at all. He brings these people back to an historic event. Something that actually happened in history. He brings them back to the cross. Why? Why does Paul do this? And here's why. Because these historic events never change. They're done. They can never be modified. They can never be undone. My impressions, my emotions, even my sense of God's presence, if I'm honest, can be warm, cool, hot. My situation, my circumstances, they can be very slippery things. It can all change so rapidly. But nothing can change the fact that God's love was revealed to me through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. In other words, Paul does something very few teachers do anymore. He has the boldness to insist comfort is rooted in doctrine. Comfort isn't rooted in comfort. Comfort is rooted in doctrine. Confidence is rooted in doctrine. This is very unpopular today. 
I know all sorts of churches. I talk to pastors in York region, churches close to us, that publicly take pride in the fact that they don't deal in doctrine. They deal in relationships. They don't deal in doctrine. They deal in worship. Their goal is to make church as unchurchy as possible. They give talks, not theology. They share. They don't teach. And that's not just style. Something bigger is happening. Paul goes in the opposite, opposite direction. And, and his method itself teaches us something important. His approach teaches us that assurance and peace, that's what we want. Confidence, hope, assurance, peace. Those things can't be sustained without understanding doctrine. His approach in our text shows the foolishness and the emptiness of people who cry, don't give me doctrine, Pastor Don. Just give me something practical. Oh, you don't get it. Consider this issue. How can desperate people find confidence? And I think we would all agree there's nothing more practical and helpful than that. How do you find confidence? But, Paul says, there's only one approach that ultimately works. And Paul's road to confidence and comfort in troubled times, his method is to take the events of Christianity... He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. His method is to take the events of Christianity and then explain their meaning. You can't find lasting confidence drinking at any other well. There is no mystical shortcut. There's no relational shortcut. There's no worship shortcut. There's no emotional shortcut. Properly understood patiently worked through, line by line, lesson by lesson, doctrine brings assurance that nothing else can, and doctrine brings peace that nothing else can. And that leads us to point number three. What is the argument, then, that Paul makes from this text that God can be trusted to give us all things ultimately good and blessed? I know we've read it twice. We're going to read it one more time. Romans 8, 31, 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the doctrine. Here's the result. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So there's a what and there's a how. What then shall we say to these things? And then how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What? What then shall we say to these things? I mean, that's the issue. You have to say something. You have to say something. One way or another, whether you say it out loud or whether you silently just hold things inside, whether there's trust or unbridled anger, an emotion... Or doubt your life. Your life will say something when these kind of events come. What shall we say? Your life will say something because they have to be responded to. They can't be avoided. 
These things will advance. They will march on your life and mine sooner or later. They will. Paul answers these things. What shall we say to these things? Paul answers with the reality of the cross. But not not just that. He takes time to unfold that doctrine. Not only the event of the cross, but the meaning behind the event of the cross. That's what we're doing in this whole Sunday night series. This is what church is all about. This is what church is here for. If the church isn't doing this, she should turn out the lights and we should all go home. Here's what Paul pulls out of this doctrine of the cross. Here's another majestic reason for the death of Jesus on the cross. 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, we're meant to see the logic of two halves. And here's how I'm wrapping up. A, the first part of the verse is proof of the second part. The first part of the verse is an already accomplished fact. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. There's nothing subjective about it. You don't have to feel anything. Nothing on earth can undo that event. It just happened. It's an event, an accomplished fact of history. God gave up his son, Jesus Christ, to death on the cross. Everybody knows he did. Atheists know he did. There's no denying it. There is more evidence for Jesus Christ in history dying on the cross than Napoleon and Waterloo. It's better attested. Paul says God gave him up for us all. Jesus wasn't killed by some angry mob. God gave him up. That's important. God was the one who gave up Jesus Christ, God the Son. He did it for us. Gave him up for us all. There isn't a word in the text to infer that the all is just the elect. A lot of people do that. Let's not be like Bill Clinton and not know the meaning of the word is. All means, that's not rocket science, right? All means all. So there's the event. The second part of the verse isn't about the past. It's not about the past at all. It's about the present and it's about the future. But it's tied to the first part of the verse in a very special way. So taken together, the two parts of the verse are meant to drive home a point. A very practical, life Giving, precious point for you and for me that God will freely give us all things is as certain as his giving him up for us all on the cross and his giving him up for us all is absolutely certain because it's already happened so in other words the first half of the verse God gave up his own son for us all. That's presented to make the second half of the verse, how will it also with him freely give us all things? It's given to make that more certain. It is more certain. How will he not also do this? 
it's more certain that God will always be committed to my ultimate good than it is certain that Christ died on the cross. And that's absolutely certain because it's happened. Let me say it again, maybe more strikingly. The hard part, the mysterious part, is that God would send his own son, that he would give him up for us all, to die for us all when we were his enemies. We were his ungodly enemies. That's what the Bible says. That's the unbelievable part. But that's happened. And that being done, the truly hard part of God's commitment to us is finished. The second part isn't as hard to believe that he will freely give us all things now that we are his sons and daughters. So, as I said earlier, one of the many reasons Christ died on the cross is to verify God's unalterable commitment to provide me with all things ultimately good and blessed. And the proof of that commitment is beyond any doubt, beyond any argument, religious or historic or otherwise. It's beyond all personal opinion, all emotional feeling. It is as certain as the cross. B. This verse needs to be properly understood. This verse is not a promise that we will never experience loss, pain, perplexity, difficulty in this life. This is not a blanket promise that we will know nothing but ease and comfort. I mean, I can scream out to you, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there any sickness in heaven? You can all shout back no. We can play that game, and we're all going to get sick sometime. So what's that for? Except that that guy leaves town with a million bucks. There's a reason my title was what it was, that God is committed to give us all things ultimately good and blessed. What does that mean? What does that mean? What are the things we can now count on God to give now that he has already given up his own son? And I think, I think the reasoning of this verse is exactly the same as that of, say, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a very similar kind of promise. How will he not freely give us all things? We're promised that God knows us so well and he loves us so much and is committed to us in Christ so effectively that everything that happens to us will work for our ultimate good. Only in the Romans 8, 28 and 29 passage we are given more detail than in the Romans 8.32. In Romans 8.28 and 29, we are told what that good is. 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That was God's plan. That's predestination at its best. God from all eternity decided that those who place trust in Christ will take the likeness, the shape of Christ's character. So God will use everything. I don't know what's going to happen in my life. 
I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I don't know when anything's going to happen in my life. The only thing I know for sure is God will use everything that comes into my life to finish conforming me to the image of Jesus. He will never allow anything to dissolve that commitment to me. No outside force, earthly or demonic, can undo that great work in Christ. So, what does Paul mean when he says that God will freely give us all things? 832. He doesn't mean there won't be persecution because Jesus promised us. Paul, in the text I preached on this morning, said, It's been granted unto you, lucky people, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. So he doesn't mean there won't be persecution. He doesn't mean there won't be pain. He certainly doesn't mean we won't die because we all have that appointment. You might miss a lot of appointments, but you won't miss that one. He tells us, in fact, we will experience those things in that great Romans 8 chapter. When you get to the end, 35, 36, 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, remember the people to whom he's writing in Rome because they're experiencing all these things. We just read about them. These people are going through it. As it is written, and that's why Paul includes this Old Testament text, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice, we don't conquer apart from all those things. We conquer in, in all these things. God's commitment isn't shaken by any of these things. None of these things triumphs since Christ came and died and rose again. And so, the greatest fear that gnaws at the human heart, from the least of us to the greatest, is that somehow it's all going to come unglued. Our futures won't be as secure as we like to sing about in church. It is well with my soul. On Christ the solid rock I stand. We hope for those things in our spiritual moments. And we fear this so much that for most of mankind, life is a mad scramble to pile up as much security as we possibly can, and then maybe life won't sneak up on us and leave us with nothing. This is the fear that is abolished in Christ. God has already given us Christ, and he will not walk away from such a precious investment. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not? How? How will he not also freely with him give us all things? All things, it's the last point, in Christ Jesus. So, what we learn is major on Christ, set your hope there. Never believe that when, you know, someone in your church says, we're going to study the atonement of Jesus Christ. Never believe for a minute that there is something more practical that we could study that might help us have a zippier life in this world. The pattern in the New Testament is always exactly the same. You, you take a doctrine, a 
key doctrine, and then you unpack it, and you look at all the implications of that for life. What Paul says here is, you can't wish confidence and hope confidence. You think the cross of Christ, you apply it to life, and you will find confidence and assurance and hope growing in your heart. It's the best thing you and I can do.